Each day, all over the world, thousands of healthcare learners experience the power of simulation. This is the BS Podcast. Wait, what? 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 Beyond Simulation. Exploring the stories of the people behind these masterfully implemented simulations. Each episode discovers the real stories of how these connoisseurs got into simulation and why they stayed. This is the Behind the Music podcast of the world of simulation. Hi, everybody. My name is Christine Park, and I'm the director of the Simulation and Integrative Learning Institute at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. And one thing about me that's not simulation is I've been a lifelong glasses wearer. However, more recently, I have crossed over into the phase of life where I'm now going to need progressive lenses. So that's going to be an interesting transition. And how does that make you feel, Christine? It makes me feel curious about what it's going to be like to wear transitions lenses. And will I be one of those people that lifts up my glasses to look out through the bottom? Well, I already do that, so. Oh, I cannot wait. Um, Hi, everybody. My name is Bob Kaiser. I am the Associate Director at SAIL. And one thing about me that is not simulation-related So most people who've listened to this podcast know that I was an actor, um, and um, I was thinking of something to say as my tidbit today, and in honor of our guest, who is a pilot, um, I actually, Chrissy, I don't know if you know it, um, I actually um, have flown before. Um, One of my great starring roles, people may know me, (laughs) know me as this character, is that I had the opportunity, um, not pleasure, but opportunity to play one of the flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz, and in this production, I got flown into trees and knocked over set on opening night. It was it was it was a sight to be seen. But um, now, anyway. importantly, did you have any lines as one of the flying monkeys? Well, I definitely was saying a lot of lines. They weren't scripted, but in my my little mask, I was saying a lot of lines. <laughs> but they were not they were not amplified for the audience. <laughs> That is great. Well, I get motion sickness, so I probably uh, would not have been very good at that particular performance. Mm, yeah, that would not have been good. All right, Bob, are you ready to talk some BS? Of course I am. But wait, Christine. So I don't know if you heard about this, but on June 9th, firefighters from Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, extracted two people from a vat of chocolate after they had fallen in. It is reported that the chocolate in the tank was about waist high at the Mars uh, factory in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, and the people were unhurt, but they were not able to get out on their own. And um, the officials are not quite sure how it happened, but can you imagine falling into a vat of chocolate and not being able to get out? It sounds funny and horrifying at the same time, like being in quicksand. Yeah. It, it sounds kind of Willy Wonka-ish. Willy Wonka-ish, yes. Yeah. I hope they threw out the vat of chocolate instead of uh, making candy bars with that. I hadn't thought of it that way, Christine, but maybe I'm going to wait for a couple months before I have any <laughs> chocolate bars. Oh. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, riveting news. <laughs> 
All right. Well, today it's our pleasure to welcome to the podcast Captain Michael Sean Johnson, otherwise known as Sean, MJ, and Captain Johnson, and any other name that you could choose to call him as long as you're smiling. Captain Johnson is a Boeing 777 captain at a major cargo airline and also a simulation instructor and evaluator. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. All right. So to kick us off, tell us, what are three things that you're professionally known for? Well, you've kind of summarized it uh, to begin with. I am a 777 captain and a instructor. We call them flex instructors, which means I fly the line. And then I also go into the simulator and teach in the simulator. And I also evaluate and give validations in the simulator. Um, the second thing is I am a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, I was in the active duty for 10 years and I was in the reserves for a little more than 10 years uh, serving as a pilot in the Air Force uh, the entire time. And the only other thing that I would probably put on my resume because I've been a pilot since I left college is I was a driving instructor for two and a half years during college and I always go back to those memories because being a driving instructor around Columbus, Ohio has been far scarier than anything I've ever done in an airplane. <laughs> Thinking of myself as a student, I can totally understand that. I validate you, Sean, on that. Well, I thank you. Yes, I still have dreams or bordering nightmares of my time as a driving instructor, as a 20, 21-year-old uh, college student. Okay, so I have to ask you, because this thing happened to me when I was a driving student that I've always wondered about. We were coming back from a drive. The instructor said, okay, go park over there. And I cut through the parking lot to get to the to the spot. And he was so angry at me and said, if there had been cars parked in this parking lot, you would have hit them. My thought was, um, now... <laughs> Can you give some commentary on what you think is the quality of this driving instructor? Well, I don't want to disparage him as a driving instructor, but I do think that is quite humorous. And even as a 16 or 17 year old uh, kid, I probably would have had to laugh at that because obviously if there were cars in the parking lot, I would not have cut across the parking lot. So those just that that made for a very good story. So obviously you still remember that story. He was very serious and he was angry. And that's what makes it funnier, <laughs> is the fact that he was serious and he was angry. Well, so Sean, um, if you if you listen to the show, uh, we always spin a um, random number generator uh, to get a number between one and five and ask our guests to give us that number of things that are not on their resume, not on their CV, uh, fun items that people may not know about them. So. The number I got for you was four. So can you give us four fun things about you that aren't professionally related? Okay. Four things. Well, first, I love to play golf. I am not good at golf. But of all the games and sports to not be good at, that is the one to not be good at. Because no matter what, it's uh, fun. You're either going out with a friend or you'll probably make a friend out on the course. And plus, you get to be outside the entire time. So I don't get to play golf enough. Um, number two is my wife and I like to 
plan events, meaning we've hosted two high school reunions. Uh, we've planned fundraisers. Uh, we've planned 50th anniversary parties. That's just kind of what we do as a group. I think it started back in high school where we knew each other. We were uh, MCs together for like the school talent shows and the battle of the bands and stuff. So we continue doing that in uh, our adult lives. Um, number three would be that I am a father of a 10-year-old boy and an 8-year-old girl, and I love being a dad. It is uh, what I take pride in. Uh, when I'm not flying, I try to uh, be fully committed at home. Uh, I love watching these two who I've seen grow up from a little tiny baby to who they are. They dance. They play music. They play sports. It's just been a lot of fun to be a dad. I love being a dad. And the last thing that I don't know how much fun it is, but it's kind of ironic that I am deathly afraid of heights. Get out, know, really? No, I am deathly afraid of heights. I, I always had nightmares as a child of heights. Um, I still, we just went to an amusement park and we were on a Ferris wheel and I remembered how afraid of heights I am. But in an airplane, because I'm in control and it doesn't feel the same when you're in an airplane. But if I'm not in an airplane and I'm not in control, heights are are my nemesis. Wow. Does, does that extend to being a passenger in a plane? No, because I, I, I know the physics and I know the science behind how airplanes fly. And so I am comfortable with that. But I also know the physics of gravity. And so if I, <laughs> there is no airplane under, under me, I know how my body will react to gravity. So... Um, I figured that out as a small child, probably five years old, going to Niagara Falls, going, wow, gravity really works. Wait. Now, do you know that through personal experience of going over the falls? Right, that... that's my question. Yeah. <laughs> I do not. Okay. But seeing all that water going over the falls and seeing things fall over the falls, at five years old, the Niagara Falls made a great impression on me. So one thing I do want to throw in here um, is that um, Sean's wife, used to work at uh, what CL used to be, the Graham Clinical Performance Center, um, as Stanary's patient. And so um, we have a connection to the uh, Johnson family through that, that connection. So just want to throw that in there. Ah. That is true. And we do miss her as a Stanary's patient, and she should come back. So just putting that in the, out there. So I, I will let her know that. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Well, your story about Niagara Falls really uh, gave me a little bit of a lens into your curiosity. It sounds like you've had that um, since you were a kid. But I wonder if you could give us a, a, a little more, fill out that story a bit more about Sean the Kid. Who was Sean the Kid like? Well, I was a fun child. I like to do new things. I like to get into things. Um, but when I was growing up, my parents moved me. I am half black, half white. And my parents moved me to an all white community when I was nine. And so that was the late seventies. So that was a bit of a challenge, uh, a moving at nine and then moving into what I felt like was a little bit of a foreign and sometimes hostile environment. And then by 11, my parents divorced. And so my mom was working a lot and I 
gained a real sense of independence. Uh, as long as I stayed out of trouble, uh, my mom pretty much let me do what I wanted to do. And uh, she was working a lot. So I became a pretty independent child. Um, by the time I got to high school, things there weren't a lot of kids to play with growing up. So I, I learned to do a lot of things on my own and by myself. But by the time I got to high school, uh, things changed a bit, uh, which is it's kind of funny because I credit a lot of that to the Cosby show because people in our all white community saw black people on TV and they saw them as real people. Uh, like young people saw other young black people as real people. So I felt like I was accepted a little bit more in high school, this all white high school. Um, so that really helped, helped out. And, uh, also because my parents weren't really involved, uh, I didn't do a lot of things. They didn't sign me up for a lot of things. So by the time I got to high school, I signed up for everything. Um, I played football and I ran track and I wrestled for a little while. And I mean, I was in the physics club. I was in choir. I was in drama club. I was a library aide at one point. Um, if there was something I could sign up for and, you know, I didn't need parental permission. I was in ski club. I would sign up for it and just try it out. So I knew a lot of people. Um, that way. And I got to know a lot of people and do a lot of things that I'm really glad I kind of had that adventurous spirit and I wasn't afraid to sign up for things because all of those experiences have helped shape who I am today and uh, really made up for how bad things were prior to high school in my life. So Sean, one of the things you mentioned was having been in the Air Force. And I was just, uh, I just saw on TV last night, um, Air Force uh, Chief of Staff Charles Q. Brown, General Brown, being interviewed by Christiane Amanpour. And he released a video in which he talks about the experience of being black in the Air Force. And despite wearing the uniform and all those things, still being questioned as to whether he was a, even a pilot or not. Are you, uh, have you heard about this video? I've not heard about that video, but um, that was my similar experience in the uh, Air Force. I, my very first job uh, was flying medical airplanes. And quite often, we, uh, we would fly around. There'd be two pilots. There would be, normally be two nurses, and there'd be three med techs and one flight mechanic. And the uh, flight mechanic would be an enlisted person, and the med techs would be enlisted people. And immediately when I got off the plane, if they didn't see my rank, they immediately assumed that I was one of the med techs. And so, or the mechanic. And so when I told him the pilot, I was a pilot, a lot of times I would get a very shocked look like they couldn't believe like, wait, you're the pilot? So I, I believe some of that is just um, cultural and inherent. Uh, we, we don't have a lot of black pilots in the military. It's, um, I was a recruiter as my first, very first job in the military and I was a minority officer recruiter. And going into the minority communities and talking about the military, uh, especially in the 80s, which was still pretty close, the 80s and 90s, which was still pretty close to the Vietnam era, there was a lot of suspicion about the military. Uh, everyone in my family pre previous to that had been enlisted, so there was a lot of doubt that a um, person of color could be an officer even. Even amongst people of color, they didn't even believe it. So it's not that big a stretch to think that like a white community might not believe that uh, someone who's brown could be an officer or a pilot. Uh, we have very few 
we have a good percentage of officers in the military that are African-American. Uh, eight to nine percent, where 13 percent of the population is African-American. But when you get down to pilots, it's normally less, about one percent of the pilots are African-American. Mm. So it's a big leap to go from, you know, to even to think that you could be an officer and then to think that, think that you could be a pilot as an African-American. Um, I was at pilot training for 13 years and I could count on probably two hands the number of African-American students that I had. And I saw one African-American female in 13 years that came through pilot training. So once again, I, I, it's maybe not as much the Air Force's fault, but just culturally, it's just gonna take time for people to realize that there's those opportunities out there. And I love spreading the word to folks that there are those opportunities for them if they want to go, go get those opportunities. I just wanna say one more thing about that. When I would go into a minority community and someone would have very high test scores, which is what the Air Force was looking for, which you need to be a pilot, uh, most of the time, which this is a good thing, they would have multiple opportunities to do many things. So we were competing with many different scholarships and grants and those type of things. So it was difficult for the Air Force sometimes to get those really high quality, qualified folks to choose to serve in the military. I think it really tells a great, um, or teaches really a great lesson about the importance of representation, doesn't it? Like if you've only seen one African-American female in 13 years, part of that could be, do other young African-American girls see themselves as a pilot? And part of that relates to, have they seen female African-American pilots. Absolutely, and there are organizations out there, um, I could name several organizations which go out into communities who are pilots, who go out into communities and, and do outreach, just to, if nothing else, just to show that, hey, I am a pilot, I came from where you are, you can be a pilot also. And I just fell into being a pilot, I didn't have a pilot role model, this just kinda happened for me, and so I never would have thought, A, about going in the military had it not just happened, or B, being a pilot. It was just really a matter of luck and a matter of chance that I ended up being where I am today in this career field. Wait, okay, okay. so I, I want to hear that, Sean. So, so how did you just happen to become a pilot? Because I did not just happen to become a pilot. I, I would probably crash a plane. So how did this happen? Well, I knew... Uh, in high school that I wanted to go to, to the Ohio State University. The Ohio State. So I already knew where I wanted to go to school. <laughs> it is the Ohio State University. I had to get that in. Um, so I went to a college fair, not because I was looking at colleges, but just to go to a college fair with some friends. And a Navy recruiter got a hold of me. He asked me my test scores. And he said, hey, do me a favor. Just fill out this scholarship application. If you get the scholarship, you don't have to take it. But you would help me out. And I already knew I wanted to go to school. Everyone else was looking at schools. I said, I'll help you out. I'll fill it out. I'm a nice guy, right? So I fill that out. So it comes time for the Navy and the Air Force to turn in their qualified minority applications, and neither of them have enough. So they scheme with each other and decide to swap names with each other. So the Air Force recruiter calls my school and says, hey, you have this student there. He's qualified. He filled out a Navy application. Would he like to come down and fill out an Air Force application? And my guidance counselor said, hey, 
you can get out of school early if you go fill out this application. And all I heard was, you can get out of school early. So I was like, I didn't care where we were going or what we we're doing. I was getting out of school early. So I went and filled out the Air Force application. I got the scholarship. Then I was like, oh no, I got the scholarship. My family got all excited because uh, there wasn't that much money to pay for college. So I said, well, I'll go in the Air Force and be a computer science. Uh, I'll do computers for four years, right? And then I'll get out. I, I can do anything for four years, correct? So when I went into ROTC at Ohio State, I, you go to field training between your sophomore and junior year. And I went to field training and they interview you when you in process to this field training. And they, uh, the officer said to me, Cadet Johnson, what do you want to do in the Air Force? And I said, I want to lead people. And normally they're looking for you to say, I want to be a pilot. I want to be this. And he was kind of taken back by my answer. So he put me in charge the very first chance he had. And I did well. And I ended up being a distinguished graduate out of that course. So the reward for being a distinguished graduate was you either got a scholarship or you got a pilot slot. So I already had a scholarship. And I was like, well, I worked really hard for this thing. What is this being a pilot all about? Let me start investigating that. So I ended up taking the pilot slot and um, I was like, well, everybody wants one of these pilot slots. It seems pretty valuable. I'm going to keep it. And if I fail out, I fail out, but I'm going to try as hard as I can. And so I ended up going to pilot training, did well, and then ended up being a pilot. That's the short version of how I accidentally my life turned to where I became a pilot. I love that story so much, Sean. I did not know that story. Oh, that I love that. Talk about just saying yes to the next opportunity. That is so cool. And that's pretty much what I did. I just, each thing that came down the pike, I'm like, I'm going to try that. Uh, either I'll succeed or they're going to have to tell me I failed. I'm not going to quit. I need them to tell me this is not for you. Okay, so Sean, this is um, you know beyond simulation. So I guess we should talk a little bit about simulations. So, okay, this is the part I've been okay. waiting to talk to you about. So, you know, Christine and I are in healthcare simulation, and um, we've talked a little bit about aviation simulation. But first of all, um, tell me, how did you get into aviation simulation? Well, like I said, I was an instructor at pilot training, which we were flying in the. I was instructing in the airplane which I loved. I loved teaching in the airplane. I kind of liked flying. I said I became a pilot by accident. And so flying was okay to me. There are guys that just, it's their passion. There are girls that it's their passion. To me, it was okay. But I got to go to pilot training and, uh, in Del Rio, Texas. And once I started teaching, I was like, I love this. There are people that want to know how to do this skill. And I know how to do this skill. And I'm going to help you learn to do what, what I'm going to help you get your dreams. I'm going to help you learn this skill. So I did that for 13 years. And the last part I was at my airline job and I was in the reserves and my time in the reserves ended. Um, I wanted a little more time with my family. So I just flew in the airline and I was getting a little bored with that because I was just going out flying the line. I really missed that itch to teach. And in the airline industry, we don't, go get in the airplane and just go do some touch and goes and start shutting down engines and doing stuff wait, like we do in wait, the military. What's a, what's a touch and go? 
a touch and go. That's where you come in and do a practice landing. So you come in and you land the airplane and you push the power back up and you take off again. It allows you to get multiple landings in uh, on one time that you're flying the airplane. The airlines don't like to do that because that costs a lot of money, right? And it uses up airplanes that they need to to, to uh, gain revenue out there. So what the airlines do is they use simulation. So I, my itch to teach was still there and was really strong. So I decided to become an instructor in the simulator. And once I got to do that again, the passion for flying re- reignited. And I got to teach these people, these type A, very highly educated, highly motivated people to learn something they really wanted to learn and needed to learn to, to be good in their career and to be safe. So I just love, I love simulation even more than going out to fly the airplane because you can do things, as you both know, you can do things in simulation that you can't do in the real world. And especially in an airplane, because that's dangerous, right? I said gravity, we know how gravity works, right? And when things happen bad in the airplane, it's not so good. But in the simulator, I can make really bad things happen and teach people how to react to them and how to survive them and how to uh, learn the skills they need to be a safe and better pilot. So I just love so it. So I have a question for you on the topic of feedback because well, we talk a lot about receiving and giving feedback in simulation. So how do you take a um, highly accomplished, highly educated, highly competitive person who thinks they did a good job in the simulation but you notice some significant mistakes. What's your magic sauce? My magic sauce is the first thing that starts before we even go, go do the event. I really build a rapport with people. I, I, the first thing I always start every event out with is I want to know about you. Tell me how you got here. And the, the one topic that people really know is themselves. Correct. So if you can get someone talking about themselves, you can get them to open up and you can create a connection with them. I also use some humor and a lot of interactive learning. So I always let them know that it doesn't matter if you don't know the answer to my question. Just try to answer my question. If you don't know it, we're going to learn something. And sometimes your answer is, I'll learn something. So that kind of opens them up also. So because we've built that rapport before we've even gotten into the simulation, um, they kind of know that I'm not there to, uh, to tear them down. I'm not there to denigrate them. So if we go into the simulator and it doesn't go well, and they come out and they may think that it went well, we start with a debrief that goes with well and improve. And I let the most junior person in the room talk, and they tell me all the things they did well, and then they tell me all the things they need to improve on. And I always take it the next step farther. If you're going to tell me something you need to improve on, don't just tell me what it is. Tell me how you're going to Mm. do that. Like, let's get a plan together. And a lot of times that opens people up. So normally the more junior person is the less accomplished person, the, the, the person who has the least amount of experience. And sometimes that opens up the more senior person in the room who maybe didn't do well to see this other person kind of being humble and talking about the things they didn't do well. And sometimes that humbles them. If it doesn't, as they talk about the things they did well, if they did it well, I give them a really big compliment. I'm like, yeah, you did that really well. Um, If they didn't do it well and they think they did it well, I'll say, well, why do you think you did it well? And then we'll talk about maybe some reasons why it wasn't as good as what they thought. 
And it's always a logical reason. And when we break it down logically or per the book, um, they'll normally see what I'm talking about. And that'll normally transition into things that they need to improve on instead of things they did well. And then we'll talk about, well, how are you going to improve on that? And so the greatest feeling in simulation and with feedback is after we're done with the feedback, when they get up and say, I really learned something. Thank you. I really learned something today. And, and they're being honest because the grading's over, the feedback's over. And they, they go, I am walking out of this building a better pilot than what I came into the building. So that's kind of my motivation. And that's how I do feedback. That's amazing. And oh, what a way to build people up at the same time that you're giving them a critique. Thank you, Sean. Love that. Yeah. You're welcome. So we kind of talked about why you got into simulation and kind of why you do you know, and, and the excitement. What keeps you in simulation today? Why do you keep doing it? I keep doing it because there are endless challenges. Um, right now I'm getting to write the curriculum. So I'm getting to help develop and choose the path that um, our events are going and where we're going. We have to bring pilots in every nine months to do new training. Um, we are, the FAA is always developing something new that we need to learn based on incidents and accidents out there. So it is forever challenging. And I, I just like being challenged. Not that flying an airplane from point A to point B is not challenging, but there is some monotony in that because the best flight is where nothing happens, correct? And so if you have the best flight every day, nothing has happened. And I do like those flights. I want to go out all my flights. I want nothing to happen. But to keep kind of the spice of life going, I enjoy teaching. So I enjoy being in the simulator. And once again, I love helping people learn new things. And we have brand new hires coming in every week in there that I get to help teach and mentor. And brand new captains coming in every week that I get to help and teach and mentor. But I also get to help direct the entire program and help other instructors become better instructors in the simulator. And we're also bringing on new devices in the simulator to make them more realistic, or we're bringing on new safety items into the airplane. And so when we bring something new into the airplane, they bring it into the simulator and they're like, develop a training program for this. And then my mouth just starts watering and I get all happy and excited. And we get to, to figure out what is important about this device? What do people need to know? And we have to get that in in a limited amount of time, right? Because the simulator is expensive, the pilot's time is expensive, and we have a lot of pilots to get through. So to, to pick and choose and figure out what is important is, is also a great challenge. So what keeps me in it, to summarize your question, is the endless challenge of it. I love that comment, and um, I'm hearing you refer to or I think what I think I, I'm hearing referred to is this constant production pressure that's part of everything that we do. So I, I wonder if you could comment real quick on um, your experience on the buy-in on the aviation side of the, of the time and the expense that it takes to put everyone through these simulations. Because um, that commitment, you know, perhaps is not the same level in healthcare. It costs money to do simulation and the company or the organization has to buy into the value of simulation to um, really invest in it, right? And 
aviation's been around, aviation simulation probably has been around longer than healthcare simulation. So it's pretty universally known the um, benefit of aviation simulation and the um, cost savings on aviation simulation. It costs a simulator like the simulator that I work in, the, just a piece of equipment costs $25 million. But the airplane I fly costs $300 million. So it is still less expensive to get into a $25 million simulator than it is a $300 million simulator. So the organization instantly, just from the numbers, from a bean counter perspective, buys into simulation for us. I know you have other challenges. And we even have different devices that maybe are a $5 million device that is not as realistic, but you could learn a lot of things from that device. Or even we have a $1 million device that you can still learn some other things. So they always, they're always looking to what is the lowest cost device to get the lesson across. So I know you have uh, live patients, you have um, the, the simulator patients. So it's kind of the same thing. What is the lowest cost that uh, of device that you can use to still get the same effect and get the same lesson taught to the trainee? That, you know, that makes so much sense to me. And it, it makes me think of the fact that we can't put a price on a human life. So we can't say this human life is $300 million. Therefore, the $25 million training makes sense. Correct. Correct. We both deal in the, the, the simulation that we're doing is really a life or death simulation, right? It, it's, we're saving lives by doing the training and doing the training correctly and putting uh, the trainees through this training. I was saying training a lot in that sentence, but you understand what I'm saying. By training is how we prevent things happening in, in the real world, correct? Prevent bad things from happening in the real world. So you train normal procedures, you train emergency procedures so that you're good at both of those things. I have loved hearing everything so far. And now I'm gonna throw a wrench in the works, which is, uh -oh. Let's imagine you could do nothing that's related to your, what you do professionally now. No flying, no teaching, no simulation. If you couldn't do any of those things and you could do anything you wanted, what would be something you might be doing for a job? And uh, just to, to make sure there's a caveat, that financially there's no, uh, there's no uh, risk. So I think by day I would be helping kids and mainly kids that don't have anyone to motivate them because I don't feel like I had anyone to motivate me growing up. Um, I was a smart kid, but I did okay in school. I played sports and I did okay. I did a lot of things and I just did okay in it because no one really told me or um, helped me understand how to focus my energy and how to do well in something. So by day, I would help kids that don't have a lot of parental support and give them that guidance. And then by night, I probably would try to be a stand. I would be a stand-up comedian. I wouldn't try. I'd be a stand-up comedian. So uh, I like to go to bed kind of early. So I would have to be good enough to where people would want to come to maybe see a five o'clock and a seven o'clock show. Because by about nine o'clock, I would be ready to be done. But uh, I love having a mic in my hand. I love talking in front of people. I love being in front of a crowd, interacting with a crowd. So that really would be my dream job. And uh, helping kids during the day would, would, would help fill my soul uh, during the day so I could go be funny at night. 
I love that. I would definitely come to your show. So uh, let us know when you uh, start the comedy and we will we'll be there. <laughs> do, you, do you have a joke that you could pr- try on us right now? Oh, no. Right on the spot here. Okay. Uh, where did Mr. and Mrs. Snowman go on their last anniversary? No idea. Hawaii. Huh? Because they melted? Let it sink in. Exactly, Bob. Let it sink in. Where did they go on their last anniversary? I didn't hear the last part. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Sorry. I would have to learn to enunciate as a stand-up comedian so the joke did not get lost, I guess. What you just said is what I need to do. I love that. You're funny, Sean. I'm going to give you some validation. You're funny. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that. I'm going to still keep my day job as a pilot, but uh, I'll, I'll keep the dream alive of being a stand-up comedian someday. Well, can't you, can't you be a funny pilot? Is that okay. uh, Being funny as a pilot, especially as an instructor, is definitely a benefit. Um, I always used to say, if you're not laughing, you're not learning. Um, so hmm. when we do our briefs, it, if someone's sitting there very stone and cold uh, and I, my jokes aren't hitting, I'll have them. I'll just say, time out. You tell me a joke like you try to make me laugh so that we can break this air because obviously you're tense. You're nervous. You're not laughing. I'm very funny. And if you're not laughing, then you must be really stressed out right now. (laughs) You know how funny I think I am. Right, right, right. So show me what funny is. You tell a joke. Um, so Sean, one great thing about simulation is that, as, as you know, and you talked about, we receive feedback and reflect on the choices that we make. So what is a choice that you've encountered in your life that would have taken your life in a totally different path had you chosen it? Well, it's a little ironic that I'm talking to you about this. In high school, I was recruited starting my freshman year to go to medical school. There was a medical school called the Northeast Ohio College of Medicine, and they would get um, minority students in the area, and they would bring you to the hospital like one hour a week. And then my sophomore year, I was going to the hospital one day a week. And my junior year, I was also going one day a week. And by my senior year, I was going to the college on the weekends and taking preparatory classes. And this was all in prep to go be a doctor. They had a program where you'd be a doctor in six years. You start right right after high school. And I was so close to taking that opportunity and going that way. And at the last minute, I decided that medicine maybe not be for me, uh, would not be for me. And um, I always think about what would have happened had I taken that path and taken that choice uh, in life. Then instead of aviation simulation, you might have been in healthcare simulation. Right. And then I would be really on topic for your um, podcast Um, as opposed to just talking about simulation in general, I would know how medical simulation uh, happened and worked. Hmm. Great. And the flip side of that story, 
Give us an example of a choice that you encountered in your it doesn't have to be a professional choice, any kind of choice that, that felt risky at the time and that you're glad that you made. Um back in the late two thousands, um I before social media was big, I found the email address of my high school sweetheart and I was very nervous and I felt it was very risky, but I reached out to make contact with her and she was in Chicago working at the university as a standardized patient and uh, she didn't answer back for about a month and she didn't realize because of all the different names that I have that it was me and she was just about to delete the email and she answered back and now we are married and we have two children and we live back in our hometown and we are, we had a 14 year hiatus in the middle of our lives, but uh, we started together in high school and we are ending together here as adults. I love that story. Thank you. That's so romantic. Okay, Sean. So we're going to do something a little different now. Um, if you've listened to the show, you know that we have the grab bag questions. Uh, we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock. We're going to ask you just random questions. You can just answer what comes to your comes to mind first thing. Uh, could be short answers. We're going to see how many questions we can get in in 60 seconds. And full disclosure, we always go over the 60 seconds. I don't think we've ever cut the 60 <laughs> seconds. But maybe this will be the time. Who knows? You could okay. be the one we stick to time. Wow. Okay. Let's go for no it. Pressure. Okay. So uh, Christine's going to ask the first question. And when she asks it, then I will start the clock. Good luck. Thank you. All right. We've talked a lot about aviation today. So where is the last place you went to by plane? The last fun place I'll say is Nottingham. That was on my last trip. Nottingham, England. Nice. So what is your go-to guilty pleasure? Ice cream with some crunchy things on it. Whatever crunchy and salty is on the ice cream. What is a profession that you would not like to do? That's a good question. I, I would try just about anything. I, I can't answer that. I would try just about anything. If someone else is doing it, then I could probably do it. That's my thought process. Love it. So what is one habit that you are glad that you have? Um, I kind of am a perfectionist. You can't kind of be a perfectionist. I'm a little bit of a perfectionist when it comes to my work. So I, I really, the fine details, especially grammar. So we've hit 60 seconds, but let's do one more question. So Christine, one last question. All right. Is there life beyond earth? Wow. That is an amazing question. Yes, there is. Evan always asks, as a pilot, have you ever seen anything out there that would make you believe that? And one time I have, flying just two of us with a different company from Okinawa to Anchorage, I saw what I thought was a shooting star, and as it was coming down, it took a hard 90-degree turn the other direction. And so I was like, wow, I don't know what that was. I'm sure that I'm awake enough to have processed that, processed that correctly. But I was like, that was something that I cannot explain. Wow. Very cool. Wow. Wow. 
Okay. <laughs> proof. Proof positive. Um, the podcast right, is so- going in a totally different direction now. Oh, no. Here we go. After dark, something like that. All right. So as we are kind of coming around the corner to finish up, um, we'd like to invite you to think about a person who's been meaningful to you in your life. It doesn't have to be someone that you necessarily know. What is something that you learned from them or what is something you admire about them? So my answer is a gentleman by the name of John Charles Hayward. Mr. Hayward, he was the choir director at Hoover High School. And when I was a freshman, I was... Uh, he, it was his first year also, and I joined choir and, uh, very first week of school, I'm in there and everyone's singing. And I realized that I cannot sing. And I, because I didn't play any musical instruments, I realized I cannot read music. And I was like, what am I doing here? And so I went down to the guidance office and dropped choir. And then I got a notification next day that I was still in choir So I went down to the guidance office and dropped choir again. And I got a notification the next day that I was still in choir. So I went to uh, Mr. Hayward and said, "Uh, what's going on here? Why am I still here? Why am I still in choir? He said, "Um, I said, I can't sing. I can't read music. I'm trying to drop this class. And he said, I need you in this class because he was brand new. He said, I can tell you're a leader and I need a leader in this class and in choir. And he was probably the first person who ever said to me something like that, that, that they believed in me and they thought I was a leader. And then over the next four years, the things that I learned from Mr. Hayward on how to talk, how to present yourself, how to put a performance or an event together, how to take pride in what you're doing, uh, pride in your work and how to believe in yourself. Um, I got more from him in those four years than I did all through growing up through my childhood and the things I learned from him definitely benefited me in college, helped me get that distinguished graduate, which got me a pilot slot, helped me succeed in the military and be able to uh, get the rank that I got that I uh, was able to achieve. And also as my job as an instructor, I credit Mr. Hayward and the opportunity he gave me and the opportunity he gave a lot of people Um, and the things he did with us in high school for really changing my life in a very positive direction. Wow. What an incredible uh, man who literally changed your life. Yes, he did. Okay, Sean. So one last question. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being a guest on the, on the podcast. I've had a truly um, a fun time. Um, a lot of laughs because you are funny. You, you are funny, Sean. Thank you. I've um, had fun too, Bob. But, <laughs> but I've also learned so much about uh, your experience as um, a simulationist but also as an educator. So thank you so much for sharing your, your thoughts about that and just kind of how you approach everything. So you're uh, welcome. I appreciate that. Um, so with that in mind, what is one hope you have for simulation in the future? Um, I hope that the technology gets even better. And by that, I mean 
the I told you the device we use is a $25 million device. But things like VR, virtual reality, and augmented reality will allow us to do simulation on a more um, uh, consistent basis. And we can give out lessons. We can give out uh, situations to people. Maybe if you had a VR goggle or you had some way to do it at, at home, you could practice. You could practice on your own time so that um, we could make simulation even less expensive and more available to more people. Uh, and we could get more lessons done that way. That way, when I bring you into the simulator, maybe you've practiced that event, that event set 20 times in your own personal VR simulator at home. So you come into the simulator even more prepared. And guess what? If you're more prepared for the simulator, you're more prepared for the real world. So I think that would take simulation to just a, a whole nother level if technology will keep going. And I really look forward to seeing what uh, like virtual reality and augmented reality can do for simulation in the future. This has been BS Beyond Simulation with our guest, Captain Michael Sean Johnson. We're your hosts, Christine Park and Bob Kaiser. Please join us for a future episode.